Do you know how many laws there are in the United States? Well, if you do, you're probably the only one because it appears that no one else can even count that high. In fact, there are over 20,000 laws concerning gun regulation alone in this country. In a typical year in our modern history, a session of Congress will pass over 125 new laws into existence each year. In fact, in 2011, well, that session of Congress, it earned the moniker the Do-Nothing Congress because they only passed nine. 90 new laws into existence that year. And with all these new laws come all this new crime. In fact, since the year 2000, about 500 new federal crimes are now on the books that you could commit. Do you know how many laws you've broken in your lifetime? Any law, city, state, county, federal crime you've committed in your lifetime? Do I know how many I've committed? No, none of us probably do. With so many laws, even the brightest legal minds amongst us can't recite them all, and you have to have teams of lawyers deciphering what laws mean. Well, it's hard to obey what you don't know, isn't it? This morning, we're jumping back into the book of Exodus, and we're going through our study, Hope for the 757. So far in the book of Exodus, you might remember, but we've seen that hope begins with a burden. It was a burden of two parents just desperate for their son to make it alive. It was, it was a, a burden of, of a young man, Moses, to see his people free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And then we saw that hope conquers fear, that as Moses had to go and kind of retreat on the run to Midian, he's just wandering around there as a shepherd thinking that he's amounted to nothing and a nobody. Well, God comes in and infuses hope gradually into the heart of Moses, and it begins to conquer all those fears that he can't do anything. And then we've seen that hope dreams big dreams. You know, the dreams of the Israelites, well, it was just for a better form of slavery. It was small dreams, really. But God was moving in the heart of this leader to dream big dreams, dreams of freedom, dreams of a new place, dreams of a nation. And then we saw that hope will pay any cost. You know, Moses, even though the people he's trying to lead, the Hebrews, they're whining, they're complaining, He's not going to abandon them. He's going to pay any cost to lead them, pay any cost to equip them, to allow them to do some of the jobs that he was doing, that hope pays any cost. And this morning, as we kind of pick up the story and jumping back into it, we're going to see that hope requires obedience. Hope requires obedience. You remember? You might remember we left off at Mount Sinai. The Hebrews, they'd been in camp there for about 11 months. And then the time came for God to have a meeting with his people. And he called them to Mount Sinai. And it was quite a show. You might remember there's thunder clapping from heaven. There's lightning striking down. There's the sound of a trumpet. The people can only get so close. Only Moses is allowed to go up. And then God is going to reveal himself to Moses. And he's going to instruct Moses on what to tell the people. There's the meeting that's going to take place. And in this meeting, God is going to show his people what he requires of them, what obedience looks like. I want you to see it. Hope requires obedience. We're going to read all of Exodus chapter 20. Let's check it out. 
And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless, those who misuse his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God that he is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourself that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver, or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed up stones for you will defile it for you use a tool on it and do not go up to my altar on steps or your private parts may be exposed. So God had miraculously freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And now he's making a covenant with his people. And in this covenant, God, he's going to make certain promises to them, promises that he is going to do. And then he's also asking them uh, to hold up their end of the deal. They have certain requirements, certain responsibilities that they've got to do. This is the way a family works, right? We're always adopted into a family. So this was a very pivotal point in the history of Israel. I mean, I don't want you to miss this, but this is huge. Everything really was leading up to that point so far. I mean, Abraham's calling, the leadership of Joseph in Egypt, the, the freedom from slavery, now to make this nation this, so that law will be given, so that the standards of what it looks like to be God's people are now clearly revealed to his people. This is a monumental moment in the history of Israel. I don't want you to miss that. But 
Also understand that in every other religion, it's always man trying to ascend up to God. It's man reaching up to God, thinking if we grow in knowledge or, or if we just try hard enough and reach up, then maybe we can attain the level of God and we can get near God. You see this? It's God reaching down, descending to humanity. Why? Because no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we reach, We'll never be able to reach God. Our thinking is not going to be able to think the way God thinks. Our actions, we're not going to act the way God acts. Our love, we're not going to wait, love the way God loves. We'll never reach him. God had to come down to us. And that's what he does here, even in the giving of his law, his standards, or his ethics for morality. And when God communicates his law, when he gives his standards, it's always clear. Do you see this? His standards, his law is given in a way it is simple, precise, and it is clear. Now the people, they're going to search for some loopholes. They're going to search for a way around these kind of things. But it's obvious, it's clear, there, there's such simplicity, precision, and clarity that there is little room for any kind of creative interpretation or ambiguity here. God is very straightforward so the people know they can't just manipulate it to be whatever it is they want it to be. The law, it establishes this healthy fear, this healthy respect for God, I mean, by its very nature, the law clearly defines what sin is. And by defining what sin is, you're also anticipating a judgment if you violate these standards. At the same time, there's this blessing that's built into it, that if you do these things, it's going to go well for you. This is going to, this is going to be good. And so God, he, he gives the commands and the people understand, well, if he's the command giver, then he's also able to execute judgment if you violate those commands. So there's this healthy fear, this healthy respect that's being cultivated and established in the heart of the Israelites as they're learning what being set apart as God's people is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to function in the world in which they live. Now, I want you to notice the superiority of God's law to humanity's law. Right? I mean, when we look at our laws in our country, we got so many laws, right? God's law, it's simple, it's precise, and it's clear. Our laws, well, they're complicated, they're vague. We've got to have this mountain of, of a judicial system with judges and lawyers and people trying to interpret what it means. We've got specialization, you know, people concentrating on this aspect of the law, or people looking at that aspect of the law and trying to decipher what does all of it mean anyway. And a system like that, well, it doesn't really promote a healthy respect for the law, because you don't even know what all the laws are. And you know, no one knows what all the laws are. So if you don't even know what the laws are, how can you even expect to be held accountable for those laws? And we know that in our country, even though we don't want it to happen, that sometimes the guilty go free and the innocent, well, they're punished. And I'm not trying to diminish our laws. No, we do the best we can. This is humanity doing the best we can. But God's law, it's simple, it's clear, it's precise so that everyone understands. And when you understand, then you realize, well, I'm, I can be held accountable to that. And there's this healthy respect, this healthy fear as God reaches down to his people, descends to his people and communicates in a way that they can understand it. Now, when we discuss God's law and this morning, specifically the Ten Commandments, uh, the question always comes, so are the Ten Commandments still relevant today? I mean, are we still under the Ten Commandments? Are we still under the Mosaic Law? And 
you know, this is an important question. It's important to think about. But understand this. The question is almost always directed towards the Mosaic law. Like, I, you never hear the question, are we still under the Edenic law, the law given in Eden? Are we still under the Edenic law, the law given to Adam? Are we still under the Davidic law, the law given to David? The question always comes to the Mosaic law. It is the most comprehensive. It is the biggest. You got the Ten Commandments there. That's why that happens. But understand this. That the law then, now for a believer today, it is revelatory, but it is not regulatory, okay? That is, it, it reveals the nature and character of God. At the same time, it reveals the nature and character of humanity. But it does not regulate our behavior today because we are not under the Mosaic law. We are now under the law of Christ. And so it's a different law. Now, a lot of the laws are repeated. I mean, much is the same, but it's a different law. Just because something gets repeated doesn't mean it's the exact same law. For instance, if I were to travel over to Great Britain and I notice, hey, it looks like there's a lot of similar laws here. You got similar speed limit laws. You got similar laws against stealing. You got similar laws uh, related to like patient doctor confidentiality, things like this. So if I see all these laws, well, it looks pretty similar. I guess it just operates the same. And then let's say I decide I'm going to rent an apartment in Great Britain. I rent an apartment. I don't pay any property taxes for renting that apartment because I just assume like in America that the tenant, the tenant pays the property taxes. So I'm not paying any. Well, you do that for a while, sooner or later, you're going to be served a note that you owe all these back taxes. And if my defense is, well, you know, I'm an American, I notice we have all these other laws, and so I just figure that it works the same way too. Do you mind if I'm just like, can skip out on these property taxes? They're going to say, tough luck, you're not in America, right? You're in Great Britain, you owe these taxes. Even though much of the laws are the same, it doesn't mean they're all the same. So as Christians, we aren't regulated by the law of Moses. We are now regulated by the law of Christ. And just because there's a lot of overlap doesn't mean it's all the same. And yes, in the law of Christ, basically all 10 of the, of the commandments are now given again. Now, some of them are, sh are shifted a little bit, but all 10 of the commandments are repeated in some form in the law of Christ. I want to walk you through them very quickly here this morning. First, do not worship any other gods. That commandment is then repeated in 1 Corinthians and also in 1 Timothy. But in the law of Christ, we now had this addition where we understand that worship of the Father, Father is now mediated through Jesus Christ. And so that's how we worship. It's through Jesus. He's our great high priest. The second commandment, do not make any idols. That's repeated in 1 John chapter 5. Now, this will get extended in the New Testament to not have anything that we value above God. It's not no longer simply don't make anything out of clay or wood or silver or gold. It's anything that you would value above God. Well, that's an idol and that's wrong. Number three, do not misuse the name of the Lord. That's repeated in 1 Timothy 6. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now this one, Jesus now becomes the Lord of the Sabbath. He has become for us our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4 tells us that. And so rather than rest one day, now as Christians, as believers, we are to rest every day. It's this continual rest in Jesus, resting in him for everything that we do in every 
moment of the day. And so in Colossians, Paul is going to write, he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you because you are working on the Sabbath day. So the law of the Sabbath gets reinterpreted and, and, and re-expressed in the law of Christ. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. That's repeated in Ephesians 6. Do not murder. That's repeated in Romans 13, 1 Peter 4. And Jesus adds to that in Matthew, and he says, you can't even hate your brother. Commandment seven, do not commit adultery. You got that in 1 Corinthians and also in Matthew, only Jesus is going to add to it that you can't even think about somebody else lustfully. Commandment number eight, do not steal. That's repeated in first in uh, Ephesians 4. Only we had the addition that not only are we not to steal, we are, work, we are to work so hard that we have something that we're able to share with others. Commandment number nine, do not give false testimony. That's, that's repeated in Revelation. Only we had the addition that we can't even deceive with empty words. So it's not enough just not to lie. You, you can't even say anything that is that may be true or just empty that might lead people in the wrong, wrong direction. And then commandment number 10, do not covet. That's repeated in Colossians 3. So all 10 commandments are still valid, but they're valid not because they are the 10 commandments given to Moses. They are valid because they get repeated in the law of Christ and the law of Christ now regulates us. The, the law, the Mosaic law, is still very valuable because it reveals the heart, the character, the nature of God. And it reveals the heart, the character, the nature of humanity. And so, as we kind of explore this this morning, I want to look at some of the purpose behind God's law. Because it continues to reveal his character and the character of humanity. We see right away clearly that God has expectations of humanity. There is right and there is wrong. We see that God's instructions are plain. They're easy to grasp. You don't have to spend all this time wondering, well, I wonder what that means. What does that mean? There's no ambiguity here. It's very clear. It's very precise. God removes all the guesswork so that his people can know this is how we are to behave. Now, we live in a fallen world where morality is often defined by just our feelings and what feels right. Um, sometimes it's whatever the majority deems, the majority in culture deem to be practical. God's law, he removes any of that. And he says, no, it's not about just what the majority group think goes with. It's not about just how you feel. There are certain standards of living. And this is how you experience the best life. Because God who gives life knows best how life is to be lived out. And so as the Israelites, as they're to live these healthy, God-honoring lives, uh, they do that by following these standards. And these standards, they're now supposed to then teach their children. And so their children will know, okay, this is how we're supposed to live. This is what it looks like to be set apart. This is how we're supposed to function as God's people. And God wanted this instilled in the hearts and the minds of the Israelite children. So he gives very clear instructions on what that's to be like. Moses, he's going to write about this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's this great famous passage known as the Shema. And in it, Moses says, okay, Israelites, you got to teach your children the law. 
And you do that when you wake up in the morning, when you put them down to bed at night. You do that as you walk along the way or as you're sitting at a table. Whatever you do, just in the everyday moments of life, you got to teach this to your children. And the point was that it's continually to be taught, that you must continually teach the next generation who God is and who they are. You continually teach the next generation who God is and who they are. Because if you don't, well, then the world will teach them and the world always gets it wrong. And see, so in order for this to happen, God, he doesn't want this just to be, okay, let's set aside some prescribed time here during worship and they can learn about it there. No, the idea is this is supposed to be just in the everyday moments of life that you just take your child and you say, hey, this is what... This is what it looks like to be God's people. This is how we're supposed to live. This is how we function. In fact, later in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses gets real practical with the Israelites. He says, suppose that one of your children comes and says, hey, what's the purpose of the law anyway? Why do we have these standards? What's this all about? He says, you need to take that moment and you need to remind them of our history. Let them know how we were in bondage and slavery in Egypt and how God miraculously freed us. And then lovingly, he set us apart. He's made us into a nation. He's given us this law so that we know what it looks like to be his people. And this law that he has given, well, it promotes this healthy fear, this healthy respect of him. And it's for our good and our survival. See, Moses, he, he wants the Israelites to connect the law to goodness for our good and our survival. He recognized that the law is a blessing, that the God of the universe would descend and come down to humanity and make himself known in a simple, precise, clear kind of a way. So there's so much practical instruction there. And parents today, we got to do the same thing. I mean, in instructing our kids, it's not just something that we do on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. It's just in the everyday moments of life where we look for those opportunities when we get them up in the morning, we put them down to bed at night, when we're riding in the car together, when we're taking a walk together. And we look for these opportunities to instruct and to teach, hey, this is who God is and this is who we are. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I would often tell my students that God gives the best fun. Now I tell my own kids that, that God gives the best fun. And so I'd tell them, hey, stick with me because I'll show you things you've never seen before and I'll let you do things you've never done before because I want you to get to experience as much of God's creation as possible because God really does give the best fun. Now, the world gives fun too, right? I mean, we know this, that the world does give fun, and it is fun in the moment. It might be a laugh, you know, when you put somebody down or something like that, and there's fun in the moment. But then it comes with regret. Then it comes with shame, with guilt, and you wish you could redo that moment, that it was so fun in the moment, but it's not fun anymore. With God's fun... Well, you put your head on the pillow at the end of the night and it's just joy. You just get to remember the good times and the, the fun that was had, the fun that was shared. God's law, it promotes this hope. When you live a life focused on who God is and who you are, what happens is God becomes preeminent. And that really is the first commandment, right? To love God. And so that he is seen as preeminent in all things. He's not just somebody that you add to your work or somebody who comes along for the journey. No, he is preeminent. That is, he is sovereign and he rules over everything, every aspect of life. And when you do that, well, there's hope, there's joy, there's victory. 
But when God is just somebody who you add on or, yeah, I mean, I'm going to work God into my schedule here. What happens? God becomes smaller. The world becomes bigger. The concerns, the worries, the pursuit of short-sighted satisfaction, everything else. Your worldview gets skewed. God becomes small. The world becomes big. And hope then gives way to fear, gives way to worry, gives way to busyness and a whole sort of other things. But when God is preeminent, well then, hope replaces all that. There is a life of hope, a life of victory, a life of joy. That's where it all starts, really. That's where the, first, that's where the Ten Commandments all, all flows out of that first one. And that's actually where Exodus 20 ends up, too. It's, it's back to the preeminence of God. It's, it's in the instruction on how to build an altar. And you look at it, it might seem kind of dry. And Well, what's the big deal on how you build an altar anyway? But I want you to understand this. God is giving the instruction to the Israelites that, hey, when you go find the stone, you just go and you find the stone of the earth. I don't want you to take it to some stone masonry who's able to polish it up and chisel it away and just make it look beautiful. He's like, no, I just want the rough stuff of the earth. And you build an altar so that it, so that it can be used as a tool for worship. That's it. See, what God didn't want to have happen was that the people would become like all the other nations, specifically the Canaanites. Oh, they would build these huge altars that reach up to heaven. You'd, you'd have to walk these high steps to get up the altar. The, the priest would be up there just drawing all the attention to himself as he led the people in worship. God says, I don't want any of that. I, I don't want you to come to this place of worship and and just ooh and ah and say, oh, that looks so cool, that's beautiful, that's amazing, and be distracted by the tools for worship. I don't want you to look at the person who's supposed to be leading worship and just be in awe of them and think, oh, wow, look at, look at them and be distracted by who they are. No, I want you to see this is all a tool for worship. I want your focus to be on me. I want you to see that I am preeminent in everything. Why? Because when we focus on God, we recognize he's bigger. He's better than anything and everything else. He really is sovereign. He really rule, does rule over every aspect of life. And when you know that, well, you recognize his rules are worth following. They're worth obeying. And hope requires obedience. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you descended to us that the God of the universe, that you would reach down to us, your people. God, that you would communicate us to us how to live so that we can live like you, so that we can love like you. Help us to do that this week. Help us to teach our children, the next generation, and anyone we come in contact with what it looks like to be marked by you, to be your people. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.